as we get started in this message today, I want to invite you to use your imagination with me. I want you to picture that it is 1965. In fact, that's three years before I was born, so that's a little difficult, but it's 1965. You are driving down the highway in the state of Nebraska in the middle of August. It's hot. You have the windows down, there's dust blowing into the car, and you're watching as the wind blows through the wheat, and you don't mind the heat because 1965, only rich people had air conditioners, so you don't know anything different. It's a good day. You're on your way to see your boyfriend or your girlfriend. They live out on the western part of the state, and you're driving from east to west, looking forward to the time that you're going to get to spend with them. But you're also looking forward to the 12 o'clock hour because every day at 12 o'clock, your favorite radio program comes on. So the windows are down, the wind's blowing through, you have this excitement inside of you, and, and now here it is, 11.59, you are ready to listen. You turn on the radio and this is what you hear. If I were the devil, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies, and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing, I'd have judges promoting pornography, Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who want it until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. What'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if 
I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey. Good night. That was recorded in 1965 by Paul Harvey. Sounds like it came right out of our headlines, doesn't it? He rewrote that same thing. It was recorded in the late 90s as well, but this is the recording from 1965. It's the most popular of the rewrites. I really appreciate what he had to say. It was sent to me by a friend of mine from Missouri this past week. Paul Harvey really was a, a wonderful, wonderful broadcaster. I grew up listening to him, not in Nebraska, but driving with my dad to the oil fields of Kansas. We would go out across there, and at 12 o'clock every day, he would turn on the radio so that we could listen to Paul Harvey. After I graduated from high school, I was still listening to him. Moved up here, I listened to him on KLCB. When he died a couple years ago, we lost a radio icon, but we also lost a wonderful man of God because he never compromised his principles. He never compromised what he stood for, and he was willing to put out broadcasts like what we just heard so that people would know the truth. I really did appreciate the things that he had to say. But here's what really grabs me about what we just listened to. It does sound like it comes right out of our headlines, but when it was read in 1965 and recorded then, one of my fears might have been that Satan would also hear that recording and get some ideas. Then he would take those ideas and he would put them into practice because in 1965, Satan knew that the church was an entity to be dealt with. It was an enemy to his agenda. The church was something that he was going to have to work around. In 1965, he needed to put all of those things into practice. The church needed to be attacked because the church was growing. People were giving their lives to the Lord. But here's the thing about that. That was not just true in 1965, nor is it true in the year 2012. It was true just one generation after the birth of the church. Before the first century was over, Satan was fully aware of how dangerous this new group was going to be to his agenda. He was fully aware of the fact that he was going to have to attack the church if he was ever going to experience victory. Because during those days in the first century, literally thousands of people at a time were giving their lives to the Lord and the church was growing exponentially. And Satan had to get involved. And when he got involved, he had to get involved in the biggest of ways. Otherwise, he would lose all of his power, all of his control. And within one generation of the new church, just 40 years, he was accomplishing those very things. He was back in charge. He was destroying this new organization, this new group of people that had come together in the name of Jesus Christ to form what the Bible would refer to as the bride of Christ, the church. Satan was very, very, very good at his attacks, and he still is. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, starting in chapter 2 with what we heard just a few minutes ago, there are seven letters that are written to churches that were representatives of churches of those days. They were real churches, literal churches. They existed in real communities full of real people. Today they stand as representations of the church as a whole. Each one of them had unique things that they had to deal with, just like every church today has unique things that they have to deal with. And they stand not only as representations of the church, but they stand as representative letters even to individuals with great things that we need to pay attention to, lessons that we need to learn as we go through them. These are good letters written by Jesus himself. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, all of these letters are in red. Jesus said these words. 
By the way, if you have ordered one of the new study Bibles to go through the book of Revelation with us, they are in. We have those. They're available right after the service. Talk with Tina, and she'll make sure that we get them for you. If you would like one and did not order them, we do have a few extras, but we can order more. We have the Ryrie study Bibles from 1984, the NIV version, which is what I preach from. Those are here, but there are also more available if you would like one. Visit with her about it. They're at a great price, 40 bucks for a bonded leather study Bible. It's really a good deal. So if you want to get one of those, we encourage you to do so. What you'll find in these letters, though, is that it begins with the church in Ephesus and then makes its way through the rest of the churches, dealing with issues that are very specific to them. Let's start with this church in Ephesus. Boy, it was a special place. It really was. It was started by a couple of believers named Priscilla and Aquila. They had found some other people in the city that had met John the Baptist, and they were baptized by him. The baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism of repentance. It had nothing to do with the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the people that were baptized by John the Baptist or baptized in John's baptism, they would receive the Holy Spirit from the laying on of the apostles' hands. That's how they would receive the Holy Spirit. But in Ephesus, when Priscilla and Aquila said, we want to find some other like-minded people, they found some folks that had experienced that. They said to them, would you like to gather together with us and worship our God? They said, yes. And then the number began to grow. It was a household church. They met in a home, and they started to see that home get too small because people were flocking to it. They loved the message of Jesus Christ. Those that had heard it and had been transformed by it wanted to gather together with other people that had heard it and been transformed by it. Before long, they needed a preacher. So Priscilla and Aquila went looking for the right person to lead their church, and this is who they found. It was a man named Apollos. Go back to the book of Acts, and as you read through that book, you'll find out that the Apostle Paul and Apollos were oftentimes seen as equals in the power that they had to preach. Apollos was a great debater. He was a great preacher, and people were giving their lives to the Lord as often as they were with the Apostle Paul. He was led by the Holy Spirit and inspired by the Spirit. Apollos was their first preacher, and the church began to grow. Then when it, it outgrew Apollos... The Apostle Paul showed up in town. He wanted to see what was going on in Ephesus, so he traveled to this place in Asia Minor. When he got there, he decided that he wanted to be a part of what was happening, stayed there for three years. After the Apostle Paul was finished at the church, he turned it over to a young man he would refer to as his son in the faith. His name was Timothy. Timothy began to lead the church. The books of 1st and 2nd Timothy were written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy when he was preaching in Ephesus. They contain wonderful nuggets of wisdom like this. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, and in liberty. Those are the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul would say to him, coupled together with this. Do the duties of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your office. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. He gave Timothy great wisdom while he was leading that church because it wasn't always easy for him. John, the one who received the revelation from Jesus on the island of Patmos, the one who wrote down the book that we're studying right now, after he finished his prison exile on that island, he returned to the city of Ephesus. Later on, he would write the three letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Not the Gospel of John, but the three letters towards the end of the Bible. Those were all written while he was in Ephesus. He would call himself the elder when he wrote those letters. John became a leader of that church. That's a fantastic resume. Fantastic resume that this church had. 
all across the Midwest surrounding our Bible colleges that are there. There are little tiny churches that are a lot like this church in Ephesus. Only their mission really has become to train up young preachers. Around Manhattan Christian College, where I went to school, there were a number of those churches, and thank God for them. They would allow young preacher boys to come out and stumble through sermons and mess it up really bad, and, and they would extend all kinds of grace to us. I preached at a, a few of those churches when I was in Bible college, and then when I went back and was working for the college, had the opportunity to go and preach in a number of them. One of them was in this old farm community named Elmdale, Kansas. Today, Elmdale really doesn't even exist anymore. It got flooded out, wiped out by Diamond Creek in the, the late 90s. Prior to that, though, young preachers would go there and they would cut their teeth on the Word of God. It was a cool place. I remember walking in there the first time. I was met by the only elder that existed anymore. His name was Shorty. I don't know Shorty's last name. All I know is that he was missing a few fingers on his right hand. And, and here's how I know that. When he stuck his hand out to shake mine, I grabbed hold of it and I thought, ah, it's kind of a strange feeling. Shorty was one of those guys who just loved the church and he had given his life for it. He showed Tina and I around and, and then told us that he'd be doing the communion and offering meditations. I love this about Shorty. He has done so many communion meditations, he just couldn't come up with them anymore. So he always used the daily bread every week. How many of you have seen that little devotional book, The Daily Bread? A number of you have. He kept it tucked in the waistband of his pants. When he would get up to do communion, he'd pull that out and use the remaining fingers to find his way in there, and, and then he would read out of it and lead the church in a prayer. Shorty was a man of God, and, and when he goes to heaven, if he hasn't already, the Lord is going to welcome him with open arms because of the way he loved that church. The first time we went there, after he showed us around and showed us the order of service, he said this to me. Back when Don Wilson was in school, he was our preacher. Today, 45 years later, Don Wilson is the leader of one of the largest churches in the United States of America in Phoenix, Arizona. Shorty was thrilled that Don had cut his teeth on preaching with them. Then he said, Kevin Ingram was also one of our preachers when he was in Bible college. We're excited about that. Today, Kevin is the president of Manhattan Christian College. He has the exact pulpit, the actual pulpit, from the Elmdale Church sitting in his office. When they tore the church down, they gave Kevin the pulpit, and that was a great honor for him. And so Kevin tells the story of that all the time. I'm pretty positive after we preached there, when other young preachers would go, Shorty would introduce himself to him. He'd say Don Wilson was here, and Kevin Ingram was here, and Phil Allspaw even preached here once or twice. <laughs> or not. Or not. We'll, we'll just leave that as a possibility that something like that happened. Church in Ephesus had a great resume of people that had invested in that church. They were thrilled by the fact that Apollos was there and Paul was there and, and Timothy was there and John was one of their leaders, one of their elders, and they should have been. It was a good place. It was a tough city. It really was. And to start a church in a place like this would have been hard. It was a port city, a hub of commerce. When the ships would come through the Mediterranean Sea, they would stop three miles downriver from the city of Ephesus. They would shuttle all of their merchandise up the river to the entrance, to the port into Asia Minor. All of it came through the city of Ephesus. Archaeologists today would tell you that there was at least a half to three-quarter mile long marble-lined road from the port into the main part of the city, columns set on either side of it. Every politician that came into Asia Minor would come through the city of Ephesus. They would have to walk down that marble-lined road. There was a lot of money that was a part of this place because of the commerce and the trade that took place there. But the biggest moneymaker for them had nothing to do with it being in a shipping lane. It had everything to do with a temple that was built in the middle of the city. 
And that temple had nothing to do with Jehovah God. It was built to a false god named Artemis. She was also called Diana. It was believed that she had fallen from heaven. But all of the sketches, renderings, anything that anybody has ever found to show what she looked like, there was nothing heavenly about her. It was a vile, disgusting place. It sat in the middle of the city of Ephesus. People went there for a number of reasons. One of those was the inner sanctuary was the most secure place in all of the region, so it acted as the bank. Other people went there because they wanted to be with one of the priestesses from the, the temple of Artemis. A priestess in one of those temples was a prostitute. It was a part of their worship. So they would go to the temple and they would pay X number of dollars or drachmas or whatever to be able to be with one of those priestesses and it drew people in from all over the region. That was a normal practice in a lot of the, the temples of the false gods. Their priestesses were prostitutes and people made that a part of their worship. So they flocked to that area. During those days, Ephesus was full of money, it was full of trade, it was full of commerce, and it was full of demonic activity because of that temple that sat right in the middle of the city. I want you to see how bad it was. If you have your Bibles with you, go to Acts chapter 19 with me. Acts chapter 19. It's not surprising at all that the demonic forces had a hold on this place. Remember what sat right in the middle of the city. But now this young church is getting going and a number of people are giving their lives to the Lord. They're becoming Christians. They're seeing the power of the Holy Spirit. They want that power for themselves. Here's what happens in the realm of the demonic. It's actually kind of funny, so be ready to laugh. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. <laughs> Folks, it's funny. You can laugh. Follow what's happening here. Here's these Jews who have seen what the apostles are able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're able to cast out demons. In Ephesus, there's a ton of demon-possessed people because they have a temple in the middle of the city built to the Greek god Artemis. So demonic activity is everywhere. This Jewish chief priest says, I want to cast demons out as well, just like Paul did. Think of what that will mean for me. So he goes up to a demon-possessed person, not having the Holy Spirit himself and not knowing who Jesus was on his own. He says, in the name of the Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The demon actually talks back. I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is. But who are you? And then jumps on and gives him a whooping. <laughs> I just think that's funny. Because without the Holy Spirit, you don't have that kind of power. But it looked awfully appealing to these Jews. They wanted to try this. That's just some of the stuff that was going on. Listen to what else is happening. This is verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came openly, confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Demonic activity was everywhere. People were involved in witchcraft and sorcery, and now they were hearing about Jesus Christ and they were seeing the power of the Holy Spirit. They wanted out of that old way of life, so they brought their books. 
They brought their scrolls, the things that taught them witchcraft. They brought all of that together, and in the middle of the city, they set it on fire, which, by the way, is the right thing to do. If you have books in your house that tie you to the occult, books that deal with witchcraft, books that deal with sorcery, don't take them to the dump. Don't give them to anybody else. You set them on fire and get rid of them. That's exactly what they did. They brought them into the center of the city, and they set them on fire, and there was an accountant there keeping track of all of it, tallying up what it was worth. And after that fire was done and everybody had finished, 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was a silver coin. It represented one day's wage. It would have taken one man 50,000 days to earn enough money to cover the cost of everything that they burnt. People got upset about that because this was a lot of money. People got upset about it because they began to see the church changing the whole direction of their community. People got upset about it because they began to say, if Jesus Christ really takes hold here, we're going to lose a lot of the cash that we have been making. Listen to what happens. We're in verse 23. About that time, there were some great disturbances about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul was convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who worship, is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Now let's stop there for just a second and talk about this theater. The communities, the cities, all had these huge outdoor amphitheaters. People would gather there for entertainment. They would gather there for community meetings. They would gather there for a number of different purposes. They're amazing places. It's amazing architecture and engineering. When we were in the Holy Lands, we saw a number of these places. Tina went down on one of them. She stood on the stage, and I stayed up at the very top of the, the amphitheater. And she just spoke in a normal voice and, and then actually sang. You could hear everything perfectly with no microphones, no amplification. I went down, stood on the stage. She went up into the, the bleachers and sat down, and I just began to preach, thinking crowds were going to come. When it was done, it was Tina. That was it. They're pretty cool places. And this one in Ephesus, archaeologists would tell you, seats 25,000 people. So 25,000 people came together to scream about what was happening because of the new church. And they had two of Paul's traveling companions ready to kill him. Paul actually was trying to go into the theater himself, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, other people said, don't let him do that, keep him away, and they physically restrained Paul, because if he had gone in, more than likely he would have lost his life. They were upset. Finally, reason took over. This riot was, was running crazy. But finally, reason and common sense kicked in, and, and some people said, we need to settle down about this. There are right ways for us to handle this, and they backed out of all of it. That was the city of Ephesus. That's how hard it was for this church to get going, but the church was strong, and it was making a difference. It really was. 
So I want to take what we just read in Acts chapter 19 and place Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses, right over the top of it. Like a transparency, we're just going to lay it over the top so that you can hear what Jesus said to this church against what you know about their history. Let's go there, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 again. We heard this just a minute ago. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Remember that word angel actually means elder. It's the leader of the church. To the leaders of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we're going to stop there for just a second. Those seven lampstands represent the seven churches. On every one of those lampstands, a little individual lamp would sit. Tina, do we still have that down here? A little individual lamp would sit on each one of those lampstands. These were carried by all of the people during those days. In fact, this is exactly what the lamp looks like. They would keep them in a pouch on their side. When nightfall would come, they had a little bottle of oil that they would spray into the lamp, stick a wick into it, light it on fire. Voila, it was a flashlight. It would illuminate their path. Everywhere that they went, they would carry that lamp with them in the dark. When they would enter a building, there were lampstands everywhere. In the houses, in the synagogues, in the buildings, they would place their lamp on the lampstand, and then they could visit with anybody they wanted to. They could see when they would leave, they would grab their lamp, they would take it with them, and they would head down the road in the dark. This is pretty cool, pretty ingenious, actually. So Jesus says he's walking among the seven lampstands representing the seven churches, and on each one of those churches is one of the lamps. Now, he's surveying what's happening in each one of these places. You will hear that terminology over the course of the next few weeks on a regular basis. Listen to what he says to the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and you have not grown weary. Now, this is laying over Acts chapter 19. What you're hearing Jesus say is, way to go, church. Way to go, Ephesus. You have figured it out. You have worked hard. You have done everything that you were supposed to, and the kingdom of God has advanced. I'm proud of you. Keep it up. Verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is what Jesus is saying. You have done the work. You have poured yourself into it. You have invested well. But you forgot why. You have forgotten why it is that you're doing this. You have forsaken your first love. Folks, that happens all the time. People do the what of all kinds of different relationships. It's a duty-bound kind of thing. And they're willing to do it because somebody told them they had to do it. But oftentimes, as years go by and people are involved in doing the duty-bound what's of a relationship, they forget the why's. Why am I doing this? And that's exactly what happened in Ephesus. They forgot why they were doing it. They had forsaken their first love. They had pulled away from it. It happens all the time. Not just in churches, but also in our individual walks with the Lord. And it happens in all kinds of other relationships. We forget, we forsake our first loves. We forget the why. 
It really does happen. Remember what it was like when you first became a Christian and you were zealously trying to follow the Lord, hungry for the Bible, hungry for times of prayer, hungry for opportunities to serve, and then you got so involved in service that you forgot to read your Bible and you forgot to pray, and all you were doing was serving, and after a while you started grumbling even about that? You were doing the what's, but you forgot the why's. Why am I doing this? You had forsaken your first love. It happens to people all the time. It happens to churches all the time. In the church in Ephesus, though, Jesus would say this to them, you're holding on to something that I absolutely love about you. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. Nobody really knows who the Nicolaitans were. They were not an organized group of believers. In fact, they were a disorganized group. A lot of people believe that they were started by a, a young deacon named Nicholas from Acts chapter 6. In Acts 6, he was known to be full of the Holy Spirit. A lot of supposition goes into believing that he drifted away from his walk with the Lord. And when he drifted, he began to figure out his own doctrines, and he started to teach them. Now again, this is a lot of supposition. His doctrines were built around freedom in Christ. And he took what Jesus taught about freedom, not being tied to the law, and he distorted it. It happens pretty regularly as well. Two of his main arguments were this. Meat sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. The meat sacrifice to idols, pretty simple issue. There were two different meat markets in the cities. One of them sold meat that had been sacrificed in the temples of false gods. They had so much meat, they didn't know what to do with it. The priests didn't know what to do with it, so they sold it. And they sold it at a discounted price because it had already been sacrificed. People could go there, they could buy cheap meat, and they could eat well. A lot of people were doing that, even Christians were doing it, because they said there's no basis to the worship of those false gods, therefore the meat doesn't matter. Okay, good enough. The Apostle Paul would actually come back and say that was true. But there were a group of believers that said, you have to buy meat at the other meat market. The other meat market served meat that was butchered solely for the purpose of selling it so that people could consume it. It was expensive. So arguments rose up, and the Nicolaitans said, eat the meat sacrificed to the idols and don't worry about it. The Apostle Paul would say, eat the meat sacrificed to idols. In 1 Corinthians, he would go on, though, to say this, unless somebody else has a problem with it. And if you're causing somebody else to stumble, then you stay away from it. It's called the argument of the weaker brother. If there is somebody that cannot accept that freedom, then you stay away from it. But really, the bad teaching of the Nicolaitans, the one that was really tough, was this. The Nicolaitans were teaching that you are free to do whatever you wanted to do sexually with no ramifications, no qualifications, just do whatever you want. And remember, there were prostitutes even within the temples, so it was easy for people to believe. So the Nicolaitans were teaching, if it feels good, do it. If you're interested in it, it's fine. If it's something you want to do, nobody should be able to stop you. That type of freedom was running rampant, and people were getting involved in things they should not have gotten involved in. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul would also address this issue. This is chapter 6, verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. 
That's exactly what the Apostle Paul would teach about it. And it was in direct correlation to what the Nicolaitans were teaching. Stay away from it, Paul says. John would hear these words from Jesus. And after he left Patmos, again, he would write the three letters of John. In the second letter, he writes something very pointed. And I believe it was tied to what we just heard from Ephesus. This is in 2 John verse 7. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Here's what John's saying. There are a lot of people out there that are going to try to steal from you what you have already figured out in your faith. They will try to take from you your relationship with Christ. You be careful of them. You stay away from them. Because if you're not careful, they will take from you what you have already earned. John's words. They can take it from you. Let me speak to just some specific groups real quick. We had a number of, of young men and women that graduated from high school this year and they're going on to college this fall. College can be a dangerous place in this regard. So if you're one of those people, listen real close to this. You will have professors that will try to tell you that there is no God. You will have professors that will tell you that the faith of your parents is ridiculous and you need not believe it. You will have professors that will tell you that you can figure out your own belief system and you should do it. They are trying to steal from you what you have already earned. You be careful. You be careful. There are people that are in your family and you have become a believer and they don't understand why. They don't understand your faith today and so they mock it and they try to get you to go back to the old way of living. They're trying to steal from you what you have already earned. Some of you work around people that do the same thing. They mock your faith all the time. They are trying to steal from you what you have already earned. There are other people that come to you with teachings that do not include Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And John says, have nothing to do with them. Don't welcome them into your home. Don't even say hello because you're sharing in their wicked work. That's what John says about it. It was the practice of the Nicolaitans that he heard Jesus talk about, and that practice still exists today as people distort the truth, and they try to steal from us what we have already earned. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 2, though, because I want you to see what else Jesus really says about this. He, he said to them, Good for you. You have done the work. You have really figured it all out. You've been serving for so long, about 40 years at this point, that you have forgotten why it is that you're doing those things. And so that I'm still proud of you for what you've accomplished, but you've forgotten your first love. Now, let me say again, that, that happens in all kinds of situations for churches, for people in their walk with the Lord, for marriages. People spend a, a number of years together, and then they begin to drift apart. They forgot why they fell in love in the first place. They forgot what the relationship was based on. People get involved in the busyness of life and then after years of just doing life together, they look back at the other person and they say, why did we get married? Why did we do this? People do that with Christianity. They get involved in a love relationship with Jesus and then they drift away from that love relationship and they look back and say, why did I do this in the first place? It happens in all kinds of relationships and the Lord knows it. So he gives a, a three-part message to them and these are really good. Here they are real fast for you. He says the first thing that you have to do if you're in that situation 
is remember what it was like when you first fell in love. Remember the heights from which you had fallen. What was it like when you first became a Christian? What was it like when you first met your husband or wife? What was it like in the early days? And once you remember what that was like, then Jesus says this, you repent of the things that have caused you to drift away from that. Repent means you confess it and you turn away from it. You say, I don't ever want to do that again. These are the things that have caused me to drift. I don't want to do those things anymore. Could you imagine what it would be like if husbands went to their wives and, and said something like this, Honey, after we got married, I got really, really caught up in my work. And I quit focusing on you, and I wasn't concerned about our family, and I'm so sorry. I don't want it to be that way. I repent of that. I want to change it. Or if wives came to their husbands and they said, Honey, I, I just got busy doing life, and I forgot about you. I forgot to invest in our relationship, and years have gone by, and, and I know that it's a bad deal, but I don't want it to be that way anymore. I want to repent of that. When we remember what it was like in the beginning, and we repent then Jesus says, here's the third thing that you need to do, and this is really good teaching. He says, do those things again. The things that you did at the beginning, you do those things again. And if you can do those three things, it is entirely possible to fall in love all over again. It really is. That's true in our walk with the Lord. It is true as a church, and it is true in our marriage relationships. It is possible to fall in love all over again. Here's a little insight for you. When people come into my office for marriage counseling and they use this statement, it always makes me smile. And it happens all the time. Where they'll sit down in the office and one of them will say, I just do not love him anymore. Or I do not love her anymore. As soon as that is said, I get this big smile on my face. I just look at him and go, all right, that is great. And they look at me and they say, what are you talking about? It's great. I don't love him. I don't love her. How is that great? And this is always my statement. So if you ever come to my office and you use these words, then know what I'm going to say to you. This is always my statement. Then fall in love with them again. It's entirely possible. Fall in love with them again. It's pretty simple. Remember what it was like in the beginning. Repent of the things that took that away from you and then do it all over again. Fall in love again. We can do the same thing with Jesus. Fall in love with him all over again. Remember what it was like when you were hungry for the word and you were hungry to pray and you were hungry to experience the Holy Spirit. Repent of the things that have caused you to drift from that and do it all over again. Tina and I got married in 1989. In 1990, boy, a lot of water under the bridge by that. You know, if you've been married for a year, whew, I'm here to tell you, you need to buy books like this, Courtship After Marriage. We did. In fact, we bought a lot of books when we were first married, and we do not regret it. We watched a lot of relationships of people that had really figured it out, and we made a decision then that we would pattern those relationships, and we would try to live the way they lived. And, and we are not sad or sorry about it. As we drove home from Chain of Lakes last night, we were talking about that very thing. Because we invested that way early on, we get to live in the, the fruits of it today in our marriage. But we did buy this book in 1990 after we'd been married for a year, Courtship After Marriage, written by Zig Ziglar. And I want to share with you as we close this out just a few things that he says. Several years ago, while coming in on a plane, which is generally the way I fly, I noticed that the fellow seated next to me had his wedding band on the index finger of his right hand. I couldn't resist the temptation, so I commented, friend, you've got your wedding band on the wrong finger. He responded, yep, I married the wrong woman. <laughs> Pretty funny. <clears throat> 
I have no way of knowing whether or not he married the wrong woman, but I do know that many people had a lot of wrong ideas about marriage and what it takes to make that marriage happy and successful. I'll be the first to admit that it's possible that you did marry the wrong person. However, if you treat the wrong person like the right person, you could well end up having married the right person after all. On the other hand, if you marry the right person and treat that person wrong, you certainly will have ended up marrying the wrong person. I also know that it is far more important to be the right kind of person than it is to marry the right person. In short, whether you married the right or wrong person is primarily up to you. Research and personal observation and experience prove that stable, sound marriages are not built on the passion of the moment. A state of ecstasy and exhilaration built on emotion and feeling is not an everyday occurrence. Unrealistic expectations create serious problems in many marriages. Realistic and positive expectations lead to marriages that last. In pursuing the long-range aspects of marriage, I discovered that a little common horse sense, which, as you know, is just stable thinking, <laughs> is required for success in marriage. For example, true happiness and real love require, number one, daily effort from husband and wife, including a willingness to forgive and go the extra mile to please your mate. Number two, the acceptance of the fact that in all facets of the successful marriage, the point is not who is right, but what is right. The willingness to eat crow when you are wrong and to be wise enough and humble enough to ask your mate to forgive you, and when you are the offended party, you must not force feed your mate this crow. Number four, the willingness to move from your side of the table to your mate's side, lovingly embracing him or her and healing the wound together through the love you are building and the forgiveness you can extend. As your marriage endures and grows, you reconcile that the, or recognize, I'm sorry, that the real long-range benefit of a solid marriage comes from the security of knowing you have someone who accepts you, loves you, understands you, is a real helpmate, encourager, and supporter, one who is loyal to you and delights in pleasing you because you have, first of all, done and been all of those things to your spouse. With each day you invest in developing a successful marriage, you come to realize that as the ecstasy, exhilaration, and passion of the honeymoon naturally and in an orderly fashion begin to subside, you come to experience a far deeper feeling of exhilaration and real love. And that is very true. It is also true in our relationship with Christ. If you have drifted from that, whether it's in your marriage or in your walk with the Lord, then three things. Remember what it was like in the beginning. Repent of the things that caused you to drift and do them all over again. Fall back in love. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Well, Father in heaven, church in Ephesus is like so many churches around the world. Christians in Ephesus are like a lot of Christians in Libby, Montana. Seems like the devil found this foothold and he has never let go of it. Lord, he can keep us so busy doing things that we forget why we do them. He can keep us so busy in service that we forget that that service is for you and because of you, and it is tied to our love relationship with you. Lord, would you help us beat him back? And would you help us live closely, immensely close to you all the days of our life? Help us return for those that have drifted and help us remain for those that are still there. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.